Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cowboy Jesus Podcast. This is Steve Booz Benson, the host of the podcast, and I want to welcome you to this episode. Thank you so much for coming. I want to thank Columbine United Church for sponsoring this podcast and allowing me the time and the space to actually uh, do this podcast here in the church building. Uh, we started many, many years ago with just a little tiny microphone, and now we have a full-on recording studio, which is a lot of fun. If you come to Columbine United Church, I want to invite you to come downstairs and look at the recording studio because so much of the magic of Columbine happens down here. Hey, I am not down here by myself. Actually, it was kind of funny. I am down here by myself, but I don't feel like I'm by myself because I am on Zoom today with a good friend and mentor of mine, Reverend Dr. Doug Hunnicky. Doug is coming to us today on Zoom from Petaluma, California. And uh, Doug and I go way back. It's kind of funny. Um, uh, Doug knew me when I was a kid. We Back in the early 80s, when I was a freshman in seminary, um, I met Doug. He was a, a pastor of a church at the time. And we got to shadow people, shadow ministers during our freshman year uh, to see kind of what a minister does. And I knew that I immediately wanted to shadow Doug because Doug was doing, I thought, some of the most exciting and cutting edge work. And I wanted to see what a pastor like Doug was up to. And that started a relationship that has lasted forever. In fact, it was really funny or fun, not funny, fun, not so long ago, Doug had a dream about me and reached out and it re-sparked our relationship. And we've had a great time reconnecting and uh, getting to know one another. And I knew as soon as we were talking with one another that I wanted to have him on the podcast because Doug is an expert on the issues of the Holocaust and the issues of rescuers, the people who risked their lives to rescue Jews in the Holocaust. But I'm going to say, Doug, thank you for being on the podcast today. It is great to be with you, Steve. It, it, and I agree. It, it is the renewal of a wonderful relationship. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Kind of, you are you married? Do you have kids? We'll, we'll let, let people know you're a human being. What are you doing? I'm a human being. Um, I love puppies and I love my great grandchildren. Uh, I have uh, two great grandchildren and five grandkids. Um, my wife and I live in in Petaluma. We moved here from uh, Marin County after being there for thirty eight years. Thirty of them in a church. Um, you know, basically, I'm a, I'm like you, Steve. I like to I like to do bike riding, but I had a a stroke a few years back. It was a cerebellar stroke and it dashed my balance. So after falling off the bike four times, I decided <laughs> <laughs> it's time to find another hobby. <laughs> so that, that's kind of my life. Um, All right. Well, Doug, it's great to have you. I mean, as I said, uh, we enjoy each other and enjoy each other's company. And I hope that that comes through here on the podcast. One of the things that, uh, and the reason why I wanted to interview Doug, as I said, is because of his expertise on the Holocaust and rescuers. So, Doug, tell the people what sparked your interest in the Holocaust. 
you know, it, Steve, it, it goes way back to the Christmas bombing of Hanoi. Um, it, you know, I was a chaplain at the University of Oregon. I was an honors college faculty member, and it was driving me crazy. And, and one of the faculty members came to me and said, look, you know, you, you need to go read this particular book and it'll give you some help. Well, it turned out to be Elie Wiesel's book, Night, his memoir from being in the concentration camps and surviving, losing his family at, at Auschwitz. Um, it, it framed my, my whole thinking, reframed it, uh, and put my focus on the victims of war. And one thing led to another, and I uh, had an opportunity to meet Elie Wiesel, um, and I, I was teaching uh, a course in his writings in the Honors College, uh, and I, I was bold. I He was coming to Stanford to do some lectures, and I wrote him and said, hey, how about coming up to Eugene after you're done at Stanford? Silly guy, me. <laughs> it's not that easy. Um, he said, why don't you come on down to Stanford? So I'm not kidding. I packed up my entire class and we went down to Stanford and we spent two days with Wiesel. And it was pure, pure magic in terms of coming to an understanding, uh, uh, personing the, the Holocaust. You know, for those students, it, it was life-changing. Um, tell, tell us about Wiesel, because a lot of people don't, that'll be a new name to some people. Tell us about Wiesel, who is he? Uh, Elie Wiesel, um, and his family were taken by the Nazis from their home in uh, Hungary and transported to the death camps. And uh, his mother and sister and um, one of his sisters and his father were killed in the concentration camps. He survived um, and went on to become one of the, the first people writing about a personal experience inside the camps um, and as a 14 year old and it was a profound book and it still is i mean yeah yeah it, I remember it remains you, yeah i remember when you told me to read it when i was shadowing you oh yes you put the book in my hand and i read it and it was it was moving devastating yep you said as far as like personing it, I mean, it puts you inside a concentration camp. It was pretty profound. And it, and it puts you through his eyes. Uh, you see it. Wiesel went on to write uh, 23 or 24 books, some about the Holocaust. Uh, it, it weaves itself in and out. Um, and then he received the Nobel laureate. Um, in he, he was the peace laureate. And his life just expanded even more uh, world influence for decades uh, and he died not long ago um, leaving behind a great legacy of uh, incredibly moving writing so so you brought him up to you brought him up to eugene to speak to your group well we went down to stanford first went down to stanford and, and when we were done um at the lecture he he said um i'll tell you what i'll come up to eugene wow. sometime and he did he came up twice and and 
offered public lectures and met with the students in my classes and in the campus ministry. Wow. What yeah. a great story. Okay. Yeah. So this got you to the point where um, when I met you, you had just finished going to Europe to visit the concentration camps. Tell us about what that was like. That was as devastating as anything I've done. Um, you know, you 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 could have a a sixteen millimeter sense of of what a death camp is from the old military movies, but when you're right there, and in the one camp there were still fragments of bone in the in the ovens. I mean, it was grotesque. Um, it was a, a profoundly moving experience. Uh, I wrote a lot about it in in a journal and did poetry around it. Um, the, the the central thing for me was one day I had I spent the entire day rereading Elie Wiesel's Night and um, a couple of other books that had been very influential. Um, you know, I just found a quiet place at Auschwitz and and sat down and started reading. At the end of the day, I was walking out trying trying to get back to my transportation to Krakow and. I walked around a, a barracks building, and you know how to out of the corner of your eye you you see movement. Well, right. there was somebody in the window looking at me, wow. and I snapped and looked, and I was looking at myself. Wow. Um, it was my reflection in that window, and although it may seem a little cliche, I had to ask myself, you know, who would you have been? In those days, would you have been an executioner? Would you have been a victim? Would you resist? What What would you do? Right. You know, when based upon our experience, my relationship with you, uh, I was in um, Central Europe, Eastern Europe once and went down to Krakow just so I could go to Auschwitz. And I went there with my family, with my siblings and my parents. And it was a profound it's a profound experience. If you ever have a chance to go to a concentration camp, I cannot encourage you enough to go. It's heavy, it's hard, but it is such a significant thing that happened in world history to millions of people. You have to come to terms with the go. Okay, let's go to that window. You were in the window, you saw your reflection, you ask yourself, who would I be? What would I be doing? Where did that take you? Uh, <laughs> it was um, the kind of experience that uh, I, I went from Eastern Europe uh, to Israel to work at Yad Vashem, to study there. What's Yad Vashem? Yad Vashem is the Israeli Holocaust Memorial Museum and, and Scholarship Center in Jerusalem, uh, wow. a very large uh, place. Uh, but you, you walk in and you walk along the avenue of the just, the righteous Gentiles. There's a tree planted for every Christian who rescued Jews during the Nazi era. Now, you know, to, to get that honor, you had to go through all kinds of background checks and the Supreme Court of Israel had to decide whether you were legitimately a rescuer. Um, and I got to know the woman who was in charge of 
um, that department that that did the research and and studies and documentation of rescue. And as I was getting ready to leave, she said, "You know, you you really ought to go to San Francisco and meet this man, Herman Graby." Um, and I said, "Okay, I, I will." And when I got back to Eugene, I mean, Eugene is. 10 hours away from San Francisco on the highway. Um, but I, I wrote him, I, I tried to call him, I didn't get any response. And then finally, um, his son called and said, you really need to come right away. My father's dying, and I don't think he'll be here much longer. So I did, I, I got on a plane, flew down and got to Graby's home. And he and I just sparked it was one of those tuesdays with maury things you know right. it just it it just comes together naturally right. and he uh he didn't die immediately as a matter of fact he got a burst of life telling me his story it, it was amazing he lived for an additional three years wow. and we got the book out six months before he died of his 22nd heart attack Oh my gosh, 22 heart attacks. <laughs> yeah. Well, the first one was uh, at, at the concentration camps. Wow. And I was able to put the book in his hand. It was a vindication. What is the book? What is the book? The book that I wrote is his biography. It is called The Moses of Ravno, uh, the true story of a Christian who rescued Jews during the Holocaust. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna cycle back to that because I'm gonna put this book in people's hands. Ah, good. Let, let's go back. Okay, so you told the Herman Gravy story. Yeah. And can I back you up? Oh yeah. I'm gonna back you up, and I want you to tell us Herman Gravy's story. Yeah, his story is amazing. I you know I keep using words like amazing and 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 that, and it is nothing less than that. For me, all these years later, having written it and listened to it and interviewed him, um, I am still amazed at, at what he was able to accomplish. Grady was uh, a railroad engineer. He worked for the Reich Railroad Administration, and he was sent to various places that we now think of as the Ukraine um, with the responsibility of regaging the rail lines and setting up the rail system to move the uh, the Nazi machinery into place. He, uh, uh, well, he happened on a mobile killing unit and they had dug a mass grave. They were lining Jews up and machine gunning them. And it, he, he had no idea this was going on. He thought he was real, doing the railroad lines for the military. In fact, the railroad lines were both military and execution. He mm -hmm. watched a father about his own age with a son about Graby's son's age waiting to be shot. And the father leans over and whispers in the boy's ear. Graby doesn't know what he says, but then the, the father points to the heavens and the boy looks up. Graby said, I knew exactly what that man said, because it's what I would say to my son. Don't be afraid. Where we're going, there are no Nazis. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow. From then on, 
And he, then, then the kids, then the father and son were shot and killed. Yeah, yeah, he watched them be shot to death. Yeah. And, and he went on from there. And it, it's a little bit of a complicated startup, but he set up an operation because he was so highly posted in, in the Reich Railroad Administration. He started requisitioning Jews to work in non-existent sites for him um, and protecting Jews who were in the sites where he didn't have control. Ultimately, he was able to, according to Yad Vashem, according to the, the Israeli sources, he was responsible for saving the lives of some uh, 2,200 and some wow. uh, Jewish um, folks who wow. were destined for the death camps. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, there were times when he confronted the Gestapo, um, you know, heart-stopping uh, moments when he is confronted and, and has to do something and think fast. Uh, anyway, he went on. Uh, at the end of the war, he commandeered a train. I mean, if you can imagine this, the, the, the German army is in retreat. He commandeers a train and puts 328 of his Jewish workers on that train and takes it into Cologne, Germany from the Ukraine. I mean, that's like insane. Um, but he was able to get those folks over the, the Eiffel Mountains and, and to safety after that wow. uh, and and you know he he was asked he was told that he would design the courtroom for the nuremberg trials and i have the original well i've now turned it over to yad vashem archives but i had the original drawing he did of the uh, nuremberg courtroom he was a consummate artist and, and engineer. He just had that skill. Right. The courtroom was designed by him. Mm -hmm. And eventually he went there. He was the only German to testify in the crimes against humanity section wow. of the Nuremberg trials. Wow. Uh, yeah. His life was in danger from then on. Um, Amazing. He was eventually moved to, to New York by the joint uh, agency that handled all of that and then moved to San Francisco where he had a, a long career um, running a, a California hall, which is a, a large building in San Francisco and designing um, silos for grain. If you drive up Interstate 5 northward, you'll pass uh, two sets of silos uh, that have his name on a little plaque on them as the engineer who designed them and built them. <laughs> yeah, you know, you when you introduced me to Gravy, I was, again, I was a kid, and I felt as though I was sitting at the foot of a of an elderly saint. Um, he just had this air about him, yeah. and and his life was at risk up until the day he died, he, he the people were out to to kill him. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about that. That was profound. One of the, the things that Mr. Gravy collected in a shoebox in his closet were death threats. Um, 
uh, one of the, the big German newspapers uh, initially referred to him as a traitor, mm. uh, which ultimately they had to retract years later. But that set off the, the people who were hunting for him. Inside wow. that shoebox was a letter warning him that he was in danger, that he was going to die. Wow. The, the man that wrote it, or I am assuming it was a man, um, described the entry to his house wow. all the way through the house. Every room was described. This guy had somehow gotten into the house or had the plans of the house and said, we're coming for you. Wow. At that point, the FBI and the San Francisco Police Department got involved and they never came for him, but he he was he was protected. He they the world knew he was going to be protected. Oh. So, yeah. so this got you going on the rescuers, and yes. you started studying rescuers all throughout the the Holocaust years. Talk a little bit about your work with the rescuers and the study of the rescuers. What did you find? What what's that all about? Well, it it started when. I was awarded a faculty research uh, fellowship by the National Endowment, uh, and it allowed me to to, to go into to Europe and identify the rescuers and interview them. Um, I'd set up a questionnaire. I wanted to know if I could find commonalities among these people uh, who acted so courageously and um, who, who I literally, as you said, risked their lives uh, to do these kinds of things. I used the, the, the resources at the Israeli Holocaust Memorial, Yad Vashem, um, to verify that these people were rescuers. So oh. I, I spent time interviewing the rescuers and the people they rescued. Oh. Uh, and, and that was really important. I, I found that the rescuers by and large, were very humble people about what they did. I mean, Mr. Gravy always said, I didn't do anything that anyone else couldn't have done and should have done. Uh -huh. um, they, they would say, I just did what a, a human being is supposed to do. Um, and then you find out, interviewing the people they rescued, the, the magnitude of what they, they undertook uh, to do that. What's there, this? I'm sorry, I interrupted. Go. I was going to say there's a um, one rescuer was a, 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 like a Red Cross public health nurse and the Nazis required her to go into the ghetto and identify Jews that should be taken out and executed because they were sick. These This ghetto was going to go to a labor camp. Well, she found out what the, the Nazis were doing and realized that there wasn't much that she could do, but she would be able and this is where they're creative. I mean, it's just unbelievable. She wore a large hoop dress and she started putting little children between her legs under the hoop dress, teaching them how to walk with her, holding on to her legs. Wow. And she would take them past two guard posts. Wow. Half by the German military. And, wow. you know, they, unbelievable. And wow. she thought nothing of it. Uh, unfortunately, one of the children had pneumonia and started coughing. 
and both of them were killed by the the soldiers. Wow. Um, it, it was tragic. Tragic. But the the ones who escaped were able to tell her story, wow. and you know they they just held that she was a human being, a, a kind and and loving human being who wasn't going to let this happen to children. Wow. Yeah. You know, these stories, I remember um, as a young uh, seminarian hearing these stories and it brought the ethics of Christianity, ethics of teachings of Jesus right to the forefront. I mean, it's like it's one thing to study these things in, sem in a seminary class and write papers and all this kind of stuff. But to meet a Herman Graby and to hear these stories of the rescuers. It does kind of put you in the um, in the seat of asking yourself, so what would I have done? Would I have risked everything to save uh, to save a Jew when I knew that there was a Holocaust going on? When I knew that millions of the of my neighbors were being killed, would I have shut the door, shut the door, pulled the blinds down, and put on? blinders around my eyes and around my conscience and not do anything or would I or would I have been a rescuer would I have risked it all to to rescue you know, so you studied these um these rescuers and one of the things that you were looking for as you said was commonalities between them what did you find were, are there commonalities between the rescuers what did you find there were and there have been subsequent studies there was one study before I started um, a big one. And then afterwards, I joined another uh, research pro project. Basically, what I, I found was that the Nazi era rescuers had articulately moral parental role models. Parental, like parents? Yeah. Yeah. Parents. Okay. Parental. And the parents spoke about the family's moral values. Mm -hmm. They would say, in our family, or uh, in Graby's case, his mother was a devout Christian um, who regularly quoted the uh, so-called golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, and uh, the other big teaching, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Grady had this inculcated in him for years growing up. Um, that you, you take care of people. And he also had seen some pretty brutal bullying of his younger brother who had um, mental, uh, educational, uh, cognitive issues. Um, and Gravy would step in to protect his brother um, and, and told me, I, I did this because this is what we do in our family. So, you know, that was something that really mattered. And as I started through the interview process, I found that more when I would ask, you know, well, where did you learn? How did you come to the place where you'd be this sort of a person? People would say, well, you know, it, it was sort of our family values. And they wouldn't put it in that kind of language, but that um, they would just say, that's what we were supposed to do. That's what I learned in my family. Um, that that was that was incredible. I also discovered that Nazi era rescuers, the majority of them, had empathic imaginations, which means that they were able 
to put themselves in the place of somebody else who was suffering. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, you know, that's uh, empathy is the ability to put yourself in another person's shoes. Right. And then imagine what's it like and what am I going to do about it? You know, and, and Raby was a good example of that. You know, he looked at that father and son. He saw them for real, wow. but he also saw himself and his son. Right. The empathic imagination. And now what am I going to do about it? Um, the, the woman who rescued the children. She was able to put herself in the place of the parents who were saying, can you get my child out? Uh, and realizing the the urgency and then the desperation that they were feeling right uh, right that's profound that yeah. is profound. yeah so you, you call that an empathetic imagination empathic imagination empathic imagination yeah empathy Big so time. and you saw this among all the different rescuers that this they had a parental uh, a parental example, a teacher of these things. Yeah, and they they had they were able to foster within themselves the second trait being the empathic imagination. Wow. You know, they were yeah. You know, they didn't have television. They didn't have iPads. They didn't have uh, you know social media games and stuff. Right. And and they used their imaginations. Um, you know, as most of us did into the 50s and 60s before the, the technological age started taking over. So, you know, that those are two of the most important traits. You know, the, the moral parental model who says this is how we act and right. the empathic imagination, putting yourself in somebody else's shoes and saying, whoa, if that were me, what would I want someone to do? Right. The, other, the other thing that, really stood out is that they were basically hospitable people you know and hospitality is is a fine art um henry Nowen, the the late roman catholic uh um theologian and scholar wrote about um, hospitality and said it, it's the transformation of a hostile environment into one that is hospitable it's the welcoming of a stranger and creating a free and fearless space for them to be who they are. Right. And when you think about it, the Nazi era rescuers were providing food and shelter and protection, and you know, they shared everything that they had. It was a hospitable men mentality. Uh, so they so I just it's this this whole thing, this these lessons are just like so powerful when we think about like when I think about raising children today. So like I've got two grandkids, four and one and a half. And so that I know that I'm going to have a significant place or I want to have a significant place in their life. I have adult children. My twins are 31 and my son is 34. And I still have a significant role, or I want to have a significant role with them. What is it? What is it? Lessons for this? If you're a parent of little kids, parent of teenagers, how do you take this these lessons and apply them to, I guess, being a parent today? Yeah, it's tough. It is really tough to be a parent and come up with kids who act in a in a way that's very moral and very caring and helpful. You know, it's 
one of the things that sticks out for me, and you know, we translated all of this into a curriculum for Sunday schools and you did uh, Asian Bible schools. Yeah, I I worked with a small group of people who, at the University of Oregon, uh, helped me build this into a curriculum. Oh, you're kidding! No, it was really really good. And one of the things that we did with the kids who were there in the presence of their families, we started helping them establish family norms. Uh -huh. That's what we do in our family. Right. That's how we behave. Right. And, you know, I I never harped at my kids. I mean, preachers always have that problem when they're preaching to their kids. Uh-huh. Yeah. I let my kids learn by example. They got to know Herman Grady. They got to the, go with the church people in our community to feed the hungry, to put out meals, to, to gather clothes, to do what they could. To this day, my my kids are the, the kind of people who will do that. We establish that as a family norm. Um, we taught the kids to look for opportunities to be caring and helpful, you know, it's amazing, but people don't see when somebody's in need and right. they don't ascribe to themselves the responsibility to do something about it. Right. Uh, so if you teach young people how to see something that needs their caring attention, they're going to, they're going to see it and they're going to do something about it. And, you know, when they do it, you, celebrate it you review it with them you talk to them about it um you ask them what it felt like to do that and how would they have felt if they were the other person building up that empathic imagination um those were the key things that we did with the families you know we 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 would send people you know the, we had a long series with one of the school districts and so the We'd send send the families out with the homework assignment uh, every week, and they'd come back having worked it with their kids, and and then we'd ask the kids, well, what was that like? And the kids would talk about it as being absolutely a fun experience, yeah. learning how to be caring and helpful. Yeah, and I don't know, you you just it's so easy to walk by and either not notice or pretend that nothing is going on. Right. I mean, that's, that's the Kitty Genovese story in New York. All of her neighbors heard her being stalked and murdered and didn't ascribe responsibility to themselves, even though they saw what was going on. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So let's, let's take a huge jump. Let's okay. take a huge jump. So we're, the world right now is focused on the Israeli Palestinian war. This has got to be so much on the forefront of your mind. Yes. As someone who has done so much work with the Holocaust and with, with uh, the nation of Israel, with Yad Vashem. Um, how, how do we apply all this to this terrible conflict that the world is watching how do, how do you apply this? Well, on, on the one hand, it's it's easy. On the other hand, it is so profoundly complex that I can hardly sleep if I go to bed thinking about it. Right. You know, when I, you know, I've, I've done a lot of time in Israel, doing a lot of research, interviewing, studying, getting to know people, 
Um, you know, I've been in touch with friends in Israel uh, throughout all of the, the turmoil that's going on now. The one thing I know is that Hamas has always had as its number one agenda the destruction of the of the Jewish state and the annihilation of the Jewish people. Right. I start there. Right. You know, they they launched an atrocious, evil uh, attack on innocent people. Right. With many Palestinians had had day to day relationships, and they 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 slaughter them. Right. You know, on one level, that has to be responded to. You can't just let that happen. Right. Um, on the other, you know, the the choice is yours. What are you going to do about it? Um, Thomas Friedman had a, a marvelous. Uh, uh, essay in the uh, paper yesterday, which would be what uh, New York Times would be the 30th of, of October. And, and you know, I, I really agree with it. He said Israel had the opportunity to, to act like India did years ago when the Pakistan terrorists came into India and to Mumbai and killed hundreds of people, slaughtered them. The, the the leader of, of, of India chose not to respond militarily hmm. because he would lose the world's support. Wow. And the focus would go from the massacre to the response. And that's what's happened in, in the situation now. You know, I, I, I regret to say it, but I, I don't think Israel has the, the support of the world right now because of the way they're going into Gaza. And it, it's devastating. You know, you, you see the children, uh, the Palestinian children. There, were, there's a, there was a picture in the New York Times uh, several weeks ago of the, the Palestinian children circled around each other, looking up into the sky, watching the missiles going over and the Iron Dome responding. And the kids have terror in their eyes. The other picture was a CNN clip of Israeli police officers in southern Israel wrapping themselves around children to protect them from the bombs that were going off. Uh, I mean, just, and you hear the bombs going off in, in this particular clip. Um, I, I, I wish Israel had had done what the in the the leader of uh, India had done. Right. Target so, target the hot, the terrorists one by one. Israel's good at that. They did it after the um, Olympic massacre. Right. You know, they've always been able to do that. Most right. governments can do that. Right. And and not not go in wholesale. Anyway, that I'm not a I'm not a politician. I'm not a diplomat. Um, I just know that my heart is torn to pieces when I think about what happened to the people in, in Southern Israel. And now my heart is further torn apart by what's happening to innocent non-combatant Palestinians, particularly children. You know, I think the, the thing that, because um, I agree with almost everything you just said, 
I think the thing that that I just struggle with so much is that the um the victims of the Holocaust. I mean, this yeah. this whole nation has been created out of the the actual evil of the Holocaust and created this incredible nation, Israel. Um, and now it it's like it's perpetrating its own. I don't know what it, the right word is in in Palestine because you know I really agree with you. Hamas that action just cannot go un unheeded, unresponded to. Israel right. had to do something. They had to do something. It's almost like you know when nine one one happened here, we couldn't. We had to do something. Something had to be happened. But we look what we the mess we created. Oev, what a mess that was. Yeah. Oh, unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, you know, so um, a lot of stuff that we've talked about here today. One of the things I wanted to talk about is your book. Um, how do people get a hold of your book? Because I just reread it. Um, you gave it to me when I was in seminary, and I reread it. It's just, it's a profound read. It's a profound story. How do we get, what is the name of the book again? The name of the book is The Moses of Rovno, R-O-V-N-O. And how do they get it? How do they how do people get it? They can send me a, an email and I'll send it to them and they can send me a check. Okay. Uh, so what is I mean, are you comfortable putting your email out here for the world? Sure. Yeah, why not? Okay. All right, <laughs> it's, what's your email? It's Doug D-O-U-G dot H U N. E K E at Comcast.net. One more time. All right. Doug D O U G dot Hunneke H U N E K E at Comcast.net. Yeah, you know, the book, um, I wish it would kind of come back for another printing because I think the, the book is so relevant to the issues today. It's something that just the lessons just never go away. Right. And we have to bring it back, especially in an era where there's massive shootings and people and dying and trying to respond to some of the, the incredible ethics or the lack of ethics in our society right now. Everything yeah. from our politics to our politicians to our guns and gun violence. I mean, it just goes everywhere. And that the yeah. lessons from the rescuers is something that we all need to study and to be mindful and ask the question, yep. as you did looking into that window, yep. what would I be? Who would I be? Who would I yeah. be? Would you I know, be? Steve, I, I keep a quote from Barack Obama on my wall. Uh, my bulletin board. Um, it was a statement he made after the Tucson mass killings. Um, um, I, I don't, I don't put it up there because he's a politician or a great president or anything else. I put it up there because he's a great human being and he caught it. And if I can read it to you, it's very short. Yeah. Rather than pointing fingers or assigning blame, let us use this occasion to expand our moral imaginations to listen to each other more carefully, 
to sharpen our instincts for empathy and remind ourselves of all the ways our hopes and dreams are bound together. Wow. That's yeah. And that's the essence of not zero rescuer studies. Well, Doug, on that note, I'm going to wind up the interview or the conversation. It's not really an interview. This is a conversation. You are always so fun to talk to. I learn so much. Everybody, I hope that you enjoyed the conversation as well. Reach out to Doug if you like a copy of that book. Uh, you, the, Moses, the Moses of Rovno, you got to uh, get that book, chase that down. Hopefully you have a lot of stuff that you've thought about that you can carry forward into your own life, being that own your own uh, parental uh, person who passes on to your children an empathetic imagination. Really good. Doug, thank you so much again. Oh, Steve, thank you. It's wonderful to be together again. And yeah. like it was in 1981. That's yeah, a lot of fun. A lot yeah. of fun. And again, thank all of you for listening to the Cowboy Jesus podcast. Until the next episode, take care. We'll see you. Bye.